0: Welcome to another Cyflix chat on Tune FM. I'm the host, Dr. Marissa Betts. Cyflix is our collaboration between UNE and eLife, Tune FM, and the Belgrove Cinema here in Armidale, where we watch science films and get to hear from an expert. Uh, the next film we have coming up is Eight Legged Freaks. Uh, And that's on next Thursday, the 26th of October, so just in time for Halloween. And we've got spider expert, Dr. James O'Hanlon joining us uh, on the night and in the studio today. Thanks for joining us, James.
1: No worries, thanks for
0: having me, Marissa. Um, Okay, so I've got lots of questions for you. Usually we kind of talk about you and your pathway into science and the work that you do in the first half of the chat. And then in the second half, we kind of unpack the film a little bit. and I was sort of thinking of how to start this conversation with you, but you have so many hats. (laughs) You do a lot of stuff. Um, You know, you're a scientist, you're an artist, you're an author now, so you've got a book coming out. Um, But what would you describe yourself as?
1: I need to work on this too because, you know, when you have those small talk conversations with someone and they go, oh, what do you do? I haven't yet got the confidence to just go, I'm a writer, or uh, I'm an artist. <laughs> Those something. are big things to say. Yeah, it took me that long to become comfortable saying I'm a scientist that, you know, I, t- I tend to just go with, I work freelance, <laughs> uh, which sounds very dull, but yeah, I, I do lots of different things in the science art story space.
0: So how do you feel, how do you feel your week? Like, what's a typical week for James O'Hanlon?
1: For... Uh, I've from home, so there's lots of sitting at the desk. And then usually I'm doing things in big chunks. So whether it's if it's an illustration job, I'm just in front of my little drawing tablet trying to get as much done. If it's a writing job, I've got my Pomodoro timer going, trying to churn out as many, many words as I can. But then sometimes I'm on site painting murals and I'm spending a week up a scissor lift with a respirator on and spray cans. So yeah, it all depends on what the job is at the time.
0: That's, uh, it's super exciting. It sounds super exciting and super dynamic. I mean, like I work in science and I feel like my jobs kind of varied at all times, but that's next level. Like, how did you go from, because I know that you, you you know, we'll talk about your pathway into science and then maybe out of science mm. as well. Like, um, how did you sort of come to that balance?
1: I always feel like science prepared me for it pretty well, because it's the same thing. Sometimes yeah. you got a paper to write, and so you're spending a week writing papers. Other times you're in the lab, getting your hands messy doing stuff. Other times you're teaching, so you're spending a week doing public speaking. You have to be very good at jumping between different priorities at any one time. So yeah, being a scientist, I feel like was strangely great training t- for being a freelance artist. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, and so when you were doing like full-time science, what was, what was that?
1: I was an animal behavior person and specifically creepy crawling things. So insects, spiders, the odd you know, bird or lizard here and there. Uh, specifically, uh, I, I guess I was mostly well-known for doing research on things like the orchid mantis, which is a praying mantis that looks like a flower. And I'm studying how and why it looks like a flower. And then beyond that, ants, stick insects wasps, grasshoppers, you name it. Did
0: you just love all that stuff since when you were a kid?
1: I started off in science thinking I was going to be a marine biologist, as I think a lot of people do. (laughs) Just like George Costanza. Yeah, you hear the term marine biologist and go, yeah, that's cool, I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to hang out on beaches and boats and that kind of stuff. And then you actually go off and study science and you realise it's all kind of the same thing. It's the same skills and same sort of knowledge base. You just apply it to different habitats. And I find that, yeah, this little hidden world of tiny little things going on without us noticing was just so mysterious and intriguing that all you needed to do was get your eye in and look under the right rock to find a story that no one's ever told before. And yeah, that, that led me away from marine biology into the world of entomology and arachnology and those things
0: i love the way you described all those things it was very poetic about you know the sort of it was always very like you discovered a secret world you know and you were able to immerse yourself in that and but you seem very able to communicate that um that wonder very well and i've known i've known you we were talking just before about how um uh, James was my second year animal structure and function <laughs> tutor when um, I was an undergraduate. But James always had this compelling way to get you excited about science. Did you find that you were a natural communicator of science or did you have to work on that sort of skill?
1: It all kind of comes down to storytelling, really. I've, and that's something sort of I've seen in reflecting on the kind of work that I did. It's always about finding out what these animals are doing in secret and telling their story, as opposed to maybe other people who had approached science from here as a a problem the world needs solving. I realized all the things I was doing is all about no, revealing re- revealing a story that hasn't been told yet. So it's probably no surprise then that it tied in well with then going out there and telling those stories in ways that people want to hear them.
0: Um, why do you think it's – I mean uh – With all of the um, knowledge that's available to people today in your mobile phone, in your pocket, Mm. why do you think it's still important for us to be good science communicators?
1: Because science doesn't stop. So, (laughs) so, So science communicators can't really stop. And with every little extra piece of information we get in science, it actually changes the stories that we've been telling that little way. You know, a story that we told... Five years ago about a particular animal or something then kind of needs to be retold again with this new piece of information to update it or to even correct the the last story. We actually understand things better now than we did 10 years ago. So these stories keep needing retold.
0: Do you get feedback from people um, that you do science communication to or with um, about the storytelling aspect? Because I, I struggle sometimes with um, other scientists who try and explain science communication to, right? that And it, uh, I think that the perception is that um, you just need to deliver some facts and let people do with that information what they will. <laughs> mm. But, you know, the, your... your um, Insistence on the storytelling aspect has a kind of uh, an aspect where y- you know you have an audience that needs to engage with this as well.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, there are so many different ways of telling a story. It's something you get, something we don't really get taught in science. You get taught it in other fields, but not in science. You think about even writing books. Are you writing a hero's journey? Are you writing a crime thriller, who done it type of thing? Uh, in other fields, you might be a journalist. There's a way of writing a story for a newspaper as opposed to, say, a magazine. You know, In science, we're told how to write mm. – for science, we're told how to write an academic paper, which has a very, very predictable structure. It's still a story structure just suited to that field. If you take that same story tr- structure and try and put it into, say, general audience science communication stuff, it's the – most dull and boring (laughs) way of telling a story at all so you kind of have to learn other ways of telling stories to to take those same facts and present them in to different audiences
0: Um, let's talk about your, um, the visual art, um, uh, side of your life. I think you're known kind of around town as the guy that does those cool murals um, (laughs) all over the place.
1: (laughs) I'm the guy that did the Macca's drive through that's the one. (laughs) (laughs) That guy. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. You know, what was your – have you always been a painter? What was your pathway into art? Like, we've talked about your pathway into science, but what about the art side?
1: Art art was always there. Art was there since before science, essentially. It was always a hobby on the side, and then – Did you study it at all? No, not formally. Mm -hmm. Like, I could sort of go back and point to things, like, you know, doing weekend sketching classes and stuff just for the the sheer joy of it, and you're – learning that way, but not in a, a, I didn't go do an arts degree or anything. And yeah, when I, I decided to step outside of academia a little bit a couple of years ago, the plan was just to go freelance and wasn't necessarily throwing it all in to, be, to become an artist. And it just sort of turned out that way that these art skills started to come in handy. And I was putting my hands up for more freelance gigs that use these skills. And it just kind of has been going since then. So that's awesome.
0: Thanks. I kind of get the, imp- I've sort of had assumed that it would be like slim pickings, you know, that it would be difficult to kind of keep that kind of side of things going. But it sounds like there's lots and lots of jobs that you end up doing. Illustrations, <laughs> the books and the murals
1: and yeah. all that sort of stuff. I like to work. <laughs> uh, well, which well, that's so good. <laughs> which sounds <laughs> handy. <laughs> that helps. And yeah, there's different people do art for different reasons. Sometimes it's, they have an idea, they want to get out there, whereas doing art for other purposes, like you know, solving problems for other people might not be their thing. I think it's worked out for me because I, I like that. I like being given yeah, a creative challenge by other people so I can be useful mm-hmm. for people when they need some designs or illustrations done in that way. So, yeah.
0: Um, I sometimes get the impression that um, or the sense that People think that science and art are very separate things, They're almost opposites in some ways. Um, but some of the most creative people I know are also scientists as well. Um, you know, ha- do you feel that science and art complement one another? I mean, obviously, can you explain that kind of connection or balance?
1: Yeah, and it's something that I've noticed a lot. Of knowing and talking to a lot of scientists, the more you talk to them, you realize they've always got this little side hustle going. <laughs> Every scientist, <laughs> I'm going to say it now, has half half a novel hidden on their laptop somewhere. They may want to talk about it, or they may want to keep it a dirty secret. So <laughs> <Totally. laughs> there's always this creative little pursuit. And then the the best explanation that I've come up with it is that I feel like science and art <sighs> trigger those same little reward centers in our brain, in that you see something arise from nothing. You know, whenever you're doing science, there's this big knowledge gap, this area where we know nothing about. And you can use, you know, your knowledge and a bit of elbow grease to bring facts to light and and contribute something to the world that wasn't there before. (coughs) Art's the same thing. You can create a character or tell a story that exists on its own once you've created it. And it's almost like you're sort of playing God in a little way, just using... Your own powers to bring something into existence that wasn't there. If that, that makes sense, no, it yeah. totally
0: does. I think about this all the time. I, I actually am one of those people that did. I did half an art degree <laughs> before <laughs> I started science, <laughs> and so I I do have the side hustles. <laughs> um, not a book yet, but other things, and I've I sort of think about. Um, they're just too different kinds of ways of understanding the world and then communicating about it. Well, it's
1: a very... It's a modern thing, separating the moat. It's true. In two separate it's fields. It's very true. Yeah. If you go back to, you know, Aristotle mm-hmm. and Pliny or Pluto, it was the same. It was just a way of exploring the world around you yep. using all of the tools you have in hand. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And
0: even, the, even, like, I mean, I... Um, always write papers and do science together with other people I collaborate with other people and art is very collaborative as well and so there's all sorts of like, very nuanced um, parallels actually um, when you dig down into it mm. um, so yeah I love picking your brain about the art v science thing um, but let's talk about the film. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Eight-Legged Freaks, which is on Speaking next Speaking of week. great works of art, <laughs> Eight-Legged Freaks. <laughs> so And Spiders, right? So yes. we're here because you're promoting your new book, mm-hmm. um, Silk and Venom, The Incredible Lives of Spiders. Is that on the shelves Yes,
1: It's been out for oh. two weeks now. Oh, it's that's brand new. that's very exciting. Yes. And
0: congrats on that. That's Thanks bloody so wonderful. Yeah. So we've got this film um, about spiders coming out, um, or we're, we're showing it next week at the Cinema, and so you'll be able to come along to the cinema, quiz James on all of your tricky spider-related questions, but also purchase the book mm-hmm. and get a signing from the author. How very <laughs> very exciting! Um, so, um, I mean, I've always been very scared of spiders. I I do have this sort of spider phobia, which I think is actually pretty common. Like, I think a lot of people yeah. are scared of spiders. It's the
1: most common fear. Bar none.
0: Yeah. Th- I mean, I just think they're terrifying. And um, <laughs> I mean, but it's obviously not one that you share. No. Uh, you're not scared of spiders at all? Like, no. How did you learn to be in love with spiders? How
1: can you not? I mean,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to watch the film with my eyes shut. <laughs> can, I, can I flip
1: it back at you and ask, what do you think it is about spiders? Sure.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, they think they move in a very mm. strange way. And um, I'm afraid they're going to bite me and um, hurt me. Okay. Yes. And um, I think they look quite strange with their eight eyes <laughs> and eight legs and all those, those sorts of uh, – they, they're like aliens to me.
1: I, I can reassure you now and say they're not going to bite you. They don't care about you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's oh, that's int- good. <laughs> it's actually interesting that you pointed to their bites because that comes up very, very rarely. in oh, really? surveys of – People that have spider fears, and you ask them why, the fact that they might be dangerous actually is a very, very uncommon answer. Oh. Thing, people point to hairy, yeah, okay. leggy, <laughs> and the way they move, the way they <laughs> might you know, skitter yeah, about yeah, the wall a bit. Yeah, they do skitter. Mm. So it's not sort of this logical response of, oh, they oh, might yeah. be dangerous. Oh, it's it's more this phobia. sort of a, emotional yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that comes up is are things like, oh, my mum hated them <laughs> okay. or my partner hates them or something. It's it's always this sort of emotional response as opposed to any sort of logical, rational thing. And, and I know thing, yeah.
0: logically, like, you know, we live in Australia, there's huntsman spiders everywhere. And they are, I know that they're good. They eat the um, other bugs and stuff in your house, but they look really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and um my partner told me that when he was growing up in his family, they, I guess, I think they tried to make them seem more friendly or less scary by giving them names. And the big ones were Peter and the little <laughs> ones were Sam. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they would say, oh, did you see Sam in the living room? Like, <laughs> anyway, we had a big Peter at, um, at, ha- at our house the other day and I was trying really hard to be friends with Peter and, but eventually Peter had to get evicted. I was—I had to get the broom out. I felt oh. terrible. Yeah.
1: How would you go doing the cup over over the spider Impossible. And a piece of paper? Absolutely impossible. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Very hard. I feel like yeah. if you can, that's a great way of. Yeah. Looking at them up close. Oh. But also getting that <laughs> just sort of feeling of empowerment, mm. sort of getting that close to them, and and can look them in the eye through the glass, that kind of thing. Eight of them. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing. You know, we can sit here and do it. I can tell you all the spider facts Mm. in the world. But do you really think that that would make a difference? I think we're sort of learning this with science and science communication in general. Do just plain stated facts. Yes. Are they as convincing as they That's should be? That's right.
0: I mean, and, and was this um, a motivation for the book? Like, you know, you obviously love spiders and there's, um, they have lots of wonderful aspects to their ecology and their biology. Mm. Do you feel like you need to sort of give them better PR?
1: 100%. That's the whole point of the book. And I don't <laughs> say that I'm there giving you spider fact, really. I'm there to tell spider stories mm. because we're not you know, computers. We're, we're, we're not just data-crunching machines. We're, we're storytellers and, and relationship mm. builders. And so this book, it's not a textbook. It's not a field guide. It's uh, here are all these astounding stories of things spiders do, or astounding people that have interacted with spiders in some majestic way about the astronauts that have taken spiders into space and back about you know, the, the, the garbage collector from Canberra that discovered a species of spider totally unknown to science and it changed his enchi- entire life trajectory. There's all these sort of crazy stories that need to be told.
0: Do you have um is there like a do you have a favorite spider or is there a favorite story about us about spiders that you really like to tell?
1: Stories are always about the spiders that are these little one offs <laughs> that are so unique and unlike any other spiders. So for example, there is a single vegetarian spider.
0: Oh, I like that guy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's a little tiny jumping spider. These are these little tiny cute ones that have two big forward facing eyes. They're
0: I actually think that I should have said yeah. before that they're really cute and I don't mind those. Okay, good.
1: <laughs> so this little drumming spider lives on acacia bushes. They're not acacia bushes like we have here in Australia, but they're called acacia bushes. And what these bushes do is at the tips of their leaves, they have a little fatty blob, a little yellow blob that's actually food for ants. And this tree wants to keep ants around and it has a symbiotic relationship with ants that are sort of protectors from that tree. Except there's this sneaky little spider that weaves its way through the ants to get to these little fatty blobs on these tree leaves and it's the main food source of that spider you can do gut contents analysis and it's like 99 percent of their diet is Aww. just these plant parts so it's f- for all intents and purposes it's it's a vegetarian spider
0: oh that's great i'm down <laughs> with, i'm down with that guy
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> and where where is this so that's in Mexico, in Mexico. or South oh, America? Okay,
1: cool. Or South and Central America?
0: Maybe it's because in Australia, we I feel like we have like huge scary ones, like like the huntsmen's, and but also um, well, the funnel are webs are harmless. And like they just I know look they are big, harmless, but we James. do have
1: the funnel webs. <laughs> they they are the big ones, so they are yeah. generally the most venomous spiders.
0: and quite aggressive. <laughs> are they, they aggressive, or is it just they that can be? So
1: because they're quite. Orange and they have these big fangs. You will say them do these like defensive stances yes. where they sort of rear up. Mm-hmm. And that's really really unusual for spiders in yeah, general. Okay. So Venom's evolved for pre-capture. Mm. So it's not evolved for defense. So the fact that they're doing these weird defensive stances might be sort of an, an exception, exception to the rule really, yeah.
0: Okay. Um but yeah,
1: don't get bitten by a Sydney. No, that would it. be quite quite bad. They yeah. don't they're the most venomous <laughs> spider. They don't have the record for deadliest. Oh, anymore. what's that one? Uh, I Is think it's the recluse one? spiders. Oh, no, that's true. Also in Central America. Yeah. Um, and they're probably... Oh, oh recluse or wandering spiders. One of those, I can't remember. But that's probably because they're found in very remote parts of the Amazon where access to hospitals and that isn't very, very good. So the fact that we yeah. have... Yeah. These the world's most venomous spiders in a very urban, easy to get around city like Sydney makes it difficult. Means that yeah. they're not the deadliest.
0: That's right. They get like, trapped in your pool filter, and you go and pull the leaves out and yeah. all that sort of stuff. <laughs> well, um, I mean, it, I think I think it, on the poster for Eight Legged Freaks, there's an enormous spider, mm. oh, I and mean, it's about huge spiders. Yeah, um, and I, it looks very much like a um, funnel web. Um, but is it is it a real spider on that poster?
1: Or? Well, the, the movie's about sort of mutant, <laughs> nuclear warped spiders, that kind of thing. But often in these big spider horror films, it's often tarantulas. Uh, yeah, they're used as the movie monster, and the reason they make for good movie monsters is actually because they're quite friendly <laughs> and they're, they're very easy to handle. So spider, uh, tarantulas, of all spiders, make quite good pets. They're, you I've can keep that. them and people you've seen footage of people have having big hairy tarantulas crawling on their arms. So if you need to film a movie where you need a big hairy-looking thing but also one that isn't going to bite anyone, you go straight for the tarantula. They so really don't
0: bite anyone? They're they're, I mean,
1: they can I and they if have. You, if you upset them, I like, guess. Yeah, if so you upset them up yeah. But if you have one that's, you know an animal handler has reared and is used to being picked up and handled, you can quite confidently let it crawl all over your, your hero actor <laughs> and, and they're not going to get bitten. And even if they do, their venom doesn't do much to us. It's a bit like a bee sting. So.
0: Oh, that's good. Yeah. So I guess back to, you know, what you were saying before about your book being good PR for, um, for spiders. I just think well, every time I see a spider in a film, they're huge and terrifying and scary. Like, I don't know if i Do you know of any film where a spider has been portrayed as, like, the good guy? It's
1: it's Slim Pickings. (laughs) The best example is probably just Charlotte's Web.
0: Of course. How did Mm -hmm. I miss that one?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Beyond that, you're looking at sort of obscure things, like there's a nice spider in James and the giant peach. Uh, I've been watching the kids' movie The Bad Guys with my daughter at the moment. It's got a clever little computer-hacking tarantula in it, <laughs> you know. But, yeah, beyond that, it, they're usually big, scary monsters. Yeah,
0: and, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of was just sort of racking my brain for a few examples, and they're often, you know, in horror films, they're giant size, like, outsized. It makes them extra scary. But in, you know, Harry Potter, there's one called Arag. They even have mm-hmm. names. Aragog <laughs> and then Shelob and Lord of the Rings, um, and then there's an old um, 1975 film called Giant Spider Invasion. You know, like, <laughs> it's a trope that has been used, uh, whipped out again and again and again mm-hmm. um, for um, spiders. Do you, do you think that they'll ever get a good rap? <sighs> I
1: well, like I, to think so. Okay. That's why I've written the book, I think. <laughs> and it's that sort of, you know, we could be nuanced about it, right? Like, I enjoy a terrible monster movie as much as anyone, you know, <laughs> but it's... Having that discussion about, all right, let's have fun with this movie monster, but let's not apply this to our kitchens and Mm. our backyards and sort of appreciate the real spiders for the real things they are.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think um, in in, in invertebrate zoology, spiders probably is that kind of um, the character that everyone loves to hate, perhaps, you know, (laughs) but I think in every um, discipline, there's something like that where like... Think about um, everybody loves dolphins and whales and stuff, mm. but, like, you know, they're not, there's, there's lots of other things that are part of those ecosystems that are just as important that are completely forgotten about. So maybe it's uh, about the bigger picture thing, that, that spiders are, are an important part of a broader story about um, life on Earth, perhaps, or ecosystems that we know very well even in, uh, in our backyard. And I
1: think we're getting there. <laughs> I, think we have, I think we have bees to thank for uh, this. Yeah. So when <laughs> so we look at, like, the wildlife sort of conservation movement. We can thank whales for that. You know, as soon as we discovered whale song, people latched onto this idea that they were these beautiful creatures a lot like us that so sing to their children or something, and then they sort of kick-started the New Age animal conservation, wildlife conservation movement. People have sort of pointed at that and they said, yep, that's the moment everything changed. Now I feel like our... Uh, approach to conservation and, and, and you know, wildlife appreciation has changed again, where we're not focused on these charismatic animals, we're starting to appreciate ecosystems as a whole. And I think people are starting to point to bees uh, as the hero for that because once things like colony collapse disorder started happening, what well, was probably like a decade ago now. People all of a sudden realize that bees aren't these dangerous stinging things. They're important things that visit pretty flowers and make sweet honey. And we need to appreciate bees, not just for them, but for the ecosystem service
0: they provide. So We don't get any food if the bees die.
1: So we're having conversation (laughs) now about, all right, what roles are animals playing in ecosystems as opposed to just animals being important for their inherent value as Mm. being pretty lovely things. Yeah,
0: that's right. And that's a good message, I think, um, you know, with the spider stories as well. Like, it's a bigger picture thing that we need to think about rather than their scary eyes. (laughs) 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 Um, With the film... Is there anything that you would suggest that people look out for in terms of spider science? Uh, it comes, or is it just like a crazy monster <laughs> film and we'll try and unpack the terrible science? Keep behind? an eye
1: out for 90s fashion, I think. There's <laughs> 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 some uh, uh, heinous examples of that. But, you know, if we reflect on 90s fashion and how quickly that went away, <laughs> I think maybe it says a lot about how quickly our uh, approach to spiders can change on a, on That's a global right. level. Well,
0: good. Okay, so I think in closing then, is there some kind <laughs> of, um, you know, if if somebody who is scared of spiders like me, you know, is confronted with a huntsman in, in their house next time, what would you encourage them to remember before they get the broom <laughs> or the shoe? Uh,
1: okay, I've got a bu- good book I can recommend. <laughs> <there again. laughs> Maybe if if you're looking at that huntsman, have a think, what would you rather, that hiding up in the corner of the kitchen minding its own business or some extra cockroaches or silverfish or fruit flies or something? Yes, the service he's providing, Yeah. Yeah, it's a very, very useful good. thing to have around your house.
0: Ah, very good. Um, thank you so much for coming to chat with us today, no James. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. And I'm really looking forward to Eight-Legged Freaks next week, twenty sixth Thursday, 26th of October, Belgrave Cinema in Armidale, 6pm start. Um, and we'll see you there. Thank you. Thank you.